Mary Slusser of Calabar, Pioneer Missionary by W.P. Livingston. Chapter 10, Bible Student. She had always been an earnest and intelligent student of the Bible, and to her it grew more wonderful every day. She believed that the spread of the book was the simplest and most natural and direct way of preaching the gospel and keeping it pure. Her own reading of it was mainly accomplished in the early morning. As soon as there was light enough, which was usually about 5.30, she took a fine pen in her Bible and turned to the book she was studying in the Old and New Testament. She underlined the governing words and sentences as she went along in her endeavor to grasp the meaning of the writer and the course of his argument, word by word, sentence by sentence. She patiently followed his thought. Sometimes it would be three days before she completed a chapter, but she would not leave it until she had made some kind of idea as to its purpose. She was her own commentator, and on the margin she noted the truth she had learned, the lessons she had received, her opinions about the sentiment expressed, or the character described. If her expositions were not according to the ordinary canons of exegesis, they had the merit of being simple, fresh, and unconventional. Her language is as candid, often as pugnant, and her remarks and conversation is very frank and force, indicating how real to her was the life and conditions she was studying. When one Bible was finished, she began another and repeated the process, for she found that new thoughts came as the years went by. On one occasion we find her interested in a recent translation, reading it to discover whether it gave any clearer construction of the more difficult passages. Such study had its effect upon her character and life. She was interpenetrated with the spirit of the book. It gave her direction in all her affairs. In her difficult palavars, she would remark, Let us see what the Bible says on this point. It inspired her with hope, faith, and courage. Often after an hour or two of meditation over it, she felt no desire for ordinary literature, all other books seeming tame and tasteless after its pages. Some of the later Bibles she used are in existence, and bear testimony to the thoroughness of her methods. Almost every page is a mess of, of interlineations and notes. As one turns them over, phrases here and there catch the eye, arresting in thought and epigrammic in form, such for instance as these. God is never behind time. If you play with temptation, do not expect God will deliver you. A gracious woman has gracious friendships. No gift or genius or position can keep us safe or free from sin. Nature is under fixed and fine laws, but it cannot meet the need of man. We must see and know Christ before we can teach. Good is good, but it is not enough. It must be God. The secret of all failure is disobedience. Unspiritual man cannot stand success. There is no escape from the reflex action of sin. Broken law will have its revenge. Sin is lost for time and eternity. The smallest things are as absolutely necessary as the great things. An arm of flesh never brings power. Half the world's sorrow comes from the unwisdom of parents. Half the world's sorrow comes from the unwisdom of parents. Obedience brings health. Bless the man and woman who is able to serve cheerfully in the second rank. A big test. What they were weary of was the punishment, not the sin that brought it. Slavery never pays. The slave is spoiled as a man, and the master not less so. It was worthwhile to die, if thereby a soul could be born again. She was deeply interested in the earlier books, for the reason that the moral and social conditions depicted there were analogous to those she had to deal with in Calabar. Every now and then we come across such remarks as these, a Calabar Palavar, a chapter of Calabar history, a picture of Calabar outside the Gospel area. This happens in Okiang every day. Her own experience helped her to understand the story of these primitive civilizations, and her annotations on this part of the Bible have always the sharpest point. 
to the sentence, The Lord watch between thee and thee, she appends, beautiful sentiment, but a ambient oath of fear. Jacob she terms in one place a selfish beggar. Of J.L. she says, not a womanly woman, a sorry story. Would God not have showed her a better way if she had asked? And of part of Deborah's song she remarks, fine poetry, poor morality. Her opinion of Jezebel is thus expressed, a vain, heartless woman, one of the most revolting stories in history, and she might have been such a queen. A good woman is the most beautiful thing on earth, but a bad woman is a source of corruption. Had only her soul been clean, dogs might have been welcome to her body. The book of Job was always well studied. She had a great admiration for the upright, wealthy, greatly feared and respected sheik, and little or none for the typical philosophers who came, calabar fashion, and sought to comfort him in his day of trial. Job was not, in her view, rebellious. His plaint was a relief to his own spirit, and an appeal for sympathy. On chapter 9 she writes, The atmosphere is clearing, the clouds are scattering, glimpses of sunshine, of starlight and beauty. The spirit swings back on its pivot and begins to see God. Farther on, Write, Job, turn to God, leave it to him. The fit of depression will pass when you have sounded the depths, and profit will follow. On chapter 18 her comment is, Such is the friendship of the world. On chapter 20, How very much the fool is in his explanations of God's ways. On chapter 27, The ultimate values of life shall be fixed not by wealth, but by character. On chapter 28, a very mine of gems and precious things, exquisitely lovely thoughts and language, poetry like this in the earliest ages of the world. Of Elihu's contentions in chapter 34, a good many truths, but served up with bitter herbs, not with love. On chapter 37, beautiful poetry, but a very bleak and barren picture of God, hard, arbitrary, selfish, self-centered, striking terror into his works, and compelling obedience and service. Nature cannot reveal him, Elihu. On the next chapter, the God of nature turns the picture, and behold, it is no more destruction and blind force, but beneficence and gracious design and beauty. And so on to the end when we read, The voice of humanity demands some such judgment and relief in the mysteries and trials and misrepresentations of this life. The poem rings true to the cry of the spirit of man. Is there a modern drama in any language to come near to this ancient production? The New Testament was brooded over and absorbed with care and thoroughness which must have made every line and every thought familiar to her. St. John was her favorite book. A few specimens of her remarks may be given. When the people saw that Jesus was not there, they took shipping and came, seeking for Jesus. The secret of our failures in winning men, they don't find him with us. The Pharisees also, with Sadducees, came and tempted him, that he would show them a sign from heaven. Man's cry for the moon. What does a sign prove? Is God known by magic? The people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. By love, serve. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked you anything? No, Lord, never was lack with thee. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what he had done. Life will tell. Speech will end in chatter. These illustrations picked out at random will serve to indicate what an intimate companion she made of her Bible and with what loving patience and insight she studied it for the illumination and deepening of her spiritual life. Chapter 11. Back to the Old Haunts Eight years had passed since she had left Akpep, and she had never been back, although she had made flying visits to the hinterland. Miss M.S., with whom her friendship had grown close, was in charge, being minister, doctor, dispenser, teacher, and mentor to the people, and with her was Miss Ramsey, 
They built a new church, which was almost ready, and Miss Mess determined to bring Ma over and have the McGregors to meet her. Ma could not resist the temptation to revisit the scenes of her greatest adventures, and went in July 1913, taking the children with her, except Mary, and ordering the others a Calabar, including the two youngest, Whitey and S.Q., who were also natives of the district to join her. Her arrival caused much excitement, and her stay was one long reception. All day the mission house was like a market. From far and near the people came to see their ma. She could scarcely be got to come to meals. On the first day, when she was called, she said, These are my meat today. And then she told those about her what Christ had said to his disciples about his conversation with the woman of Samaria. Such love as the ladies saw on both sides, and they had not thought possible between missionary and native. She seemed to remember the names of most of the people, and all the details of their family histories. One after another came forward and talked and revived stories of the old times. But she seemed vexed to see so many who were interested in her, and with no concern for the things of God. And with these she pled earnestly to come to church and give themselves to the Savior. Two notable figures were Mana and the mother of Susie, Ai. The children were a source of astonishment to all. These healthy, happy, handsome young people, the babies that had been cast away or despised, it was wonderful. They gazed upon them in a kind of awe. A few of the older and women held aloof from the twins, but not in an offensive way, and the general disposition was to ignore the stain of their birth. There was a touching meeting with Ma Amy, who could not conceal her affection and joy at seeing her old Ma again. Much to Mary's sorrow, she was still a heathen, and a very zealous one, as she sacrificed daily to the spirits in the crudest way, with food and blood, in abasement and fear. So strong was superstition rooted in her nature that she would not touch the twins, although she confessed it was marvelous that they had grown up. The two women, bound by so strange a friendship, talked long about the old days. It was, do you remember this? Do you remember that? And then would follow reminiscence of the killing time, when they worked hand in hand in secret for the preservation of life. Nothing that Ma could say would induce Maimi to throw off her allegiance to her African beliefs. And at the end of a long day she left, the same kind, high-bred, mysterious heathen woman that she had always been. She died shortly after. My dear old friend and almost sister, said Mary, she made the saving of life so often possible in the early days. It is sad that she did not come out for Christ. She could have been the honored leader of God's work had she risen to it. I cannot fancy Okiang without her. She made a foolish choice, and yet God cannot forget all she was to me, and all she helped me do in those dark and bloody days. A service was arranged, but the throng who wished to hear Ma was so great that it had to be held in the unfinished church and thus Mary had the joy of being at the first service. Over four hundred well-dressed natives were present, the largest number ever in church in Okeong. She thought of the wild old days, and contrasted them with the present scene. Truly, she said to herself, one soweth and another reapeth. She spoke for half an hour, giving a strong, inspiring talk on the duties of those who were believers in the world around them. With her usual thought for others, she sat down, and wrote to her old comrade, Miss Wright, in England, giving her the details of the visit and accounts of the people. This house, she said, is full of memories of you, and you are not forgotten. She describes with pride and hope the way in which the ladies were conducting the station, and praised them in her usual generous manner. After she left, it seemed to them that they had a greater influence among the people than ever. Chapter 12 Royal Recognition The friends who had known her long were noticing that a new softness and graciousness were stealing into her life. She never grew commonplace and was original as ever, but her character was mellowing, and her love and humility becoming even more marked. Love will overcome all, was her belief, and love, for her, included all the qualities of the Christian faith. Simplicity, 
kindness, patience, charity, selflessness, confidence, hope. In herself, she was conscious of many faults. I don't half live up to the ideal missionary life, she said, with a sigh. It's not easier to be a saint here than at home. We are very human, and not goody-goody at all. Often she was deep in the valley of humiliation over hasty words spoken and opportunities of service let slip. But she was saved from depression by her sense of humor. She laughed and dared the devil. Of one who had just come out, she wrote, She is very serious, and will take life and work more in the sense of task than of a glad free life, and we want one to laugh, to hitch on to the yoke, and joke over all that we didn't like. She also became less uncompromising in her views. My opinion, she acknowledged, may not just suit everyone, and it is possible other people may be right, and I far wrong. But although we differ amongst ourselves, and some things differentiate our work, we are all in full friendship and sympathy with one another. It was not possible for self-abnegation to go further than it did in her case. She was unable to see that she had done anything out of the common. I have lived my life very quietly, in a very natural and humble way, she would say, and all the credit for her work was given to God. It wasn't Mary Slessor doing anything, but something inside of her altogether uses her as her small ability allows. She did not say my plan or my scheme. If she did, she checked herself and said, what God wants me to do. And she always paid generous tribute to her girls, who, she said, did more than she did, although no one counted it to them. She was distressed to receive letters praising her. One who saw her go out from Scotland to her life work, and had lovingly followed her career ever since, wrote saying that her reward would be a starry crown in the glory land. And her reply was, What would I do with starry crowns, expect? What would I do with starry crowns, except to cast them at his feet? Nothing illustrated this feature so notably as an event which occurred shortly after her visit to Akpap. Two years previously, a few of her friends in Calabar, official and missionary, had talked over the possibility of securing some public recognition of her unique service. Mr. McGregor wrote an account of her life work for the government. But it was not until Sir Frederick Lugard arrived as Governor-General of the United Provinces of Northern and Southern Nigeria that action was taken. He was so struck by the heroic record placed before him that he had once sent home a strong recommendation to the Secretary of the State for the Colonies that Mary Sir should be brought to royal notice. The Secretary of State was equally impressed, and laid the matter before the Chapter-General of the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem in England, of which the King is sovereign head, and the Duke of Connaught Grand Prior. This was done, and she was selected for admission. When she received the august-looking document, asking her to accept the honor, she said to herself, now who has done this? Who am I, and what is my distinction that I should have it? She was in a quandary how to answer, but eventually complied with the request, thinking that it would be the end of it. Shortly afterwards came a letter stating that her selection had received the sanction and approval of His Most Gracious Majesty, King George V. The Chapter General, it was stated, elected her with particular satisfaction to the grade of honorary associate. This honor is only conferred upon persons professing the Christian faith who are eminently distinguished for philanthropy, or who have specifically devoted their exertions or professional skill in aid of the objects of the order. The badge of an honorary associate is a Maltese cross in silver, embellished at the four principal angles with a lion passant gardened and a unicorn passant alternately. It is worn by women on the left shoulder, attached to a black watered ribbon tied in a bow. Ma kept the matter a secret, even after she received the diploma. But the silver badge came through the colonial office to the commissioner at Duketown, and the honor being made public, her friends schemed to get her down to a formal presentation. It was a difficult problem, but it was solved by a letter being sent stating that the decoration had arrived, that she would not care to have it given to her surreptitiously, and that her duty was to come to Calabar for it. 
A telegraph form, ready for dispatch and bearing the one word coming, was enclosed. They knew she would get agitated and have no peace until the telegram was out of her hands. Their surmise was correct. She sent the message and committed herself to the ordeal. She was not elated at the prospect of appearing at a government function. Neither was she perturbed, and she went about her duties as usual. Miss Gilmore, one of the new lady agents, tells how on the eve of her departure she gathered the barons for family worship, and in a simple and beautiful way read to them the story of the Good Shepherd and the sheep that followed. Then, as an illustration, she took the story of Peter's denial of our Lord, and showed that Peter sinned because he followed afar off. Baron, she said, it's the wee lassie that sits beside her mother at mealtimes that gets all the nice bits. The one who sits far away and sulks doesn't know what she misses. Even the pussy gets more than she does. Keep close to Jesus the Good Shepherd all the way. A government launch was sent to bring her down, an honor she felt as much as the bestowal of the insignia. As she walked up to the McGregor's house, the Wilkies were in Scotland, there were many who were struck by the dignity of her appearance, dressed though she was, in an old but clean cotton dress straw hat and list shoes. On the Saturday afternoon, she went to an at-home at the barracks, where she was lionized in a quiet way. She attended a cricket match, she was an advocate of all games, and believed they were excellent civilizing agencies, and also witnessed a sham fight, where the enemy dressed themselves up as savage warriors and attacked the barrack hill. She was much impressed, and kept saying to her old friend, the Honorable Horace Bedwell, the provincial commissioner, that's just splendid, look how the officers led them. On Sunday she spoke for three-quarters of an hour to the boys at the Institute in Efik, and no boys could have listened more intently. On Monday night she was at a government house at dinner. The presentation took place at the Golding Memorial Hall on Wednesday. Mr. McGregor presiding. All the Europeans who could lead business gathered to do her honor. The boys at the Training Institute and the girls of the Eggerly Memorial School were also in the hall. Had it not been that Mr. Bedwell and Mrs. Bedwell were beside her, and that it was the former who made the presentation, she would have felt more nervous. As it was, she sat with her head buried in her hands. Mr. Bedwell spoke of her unique work and influence, and of her genius for friendship in a way that overcame her. She could not at first find words to reply. She turned to the children, and in Efik told them to be faithful to the government, for at bottom it was Christian, and as the silver badge proved friendly to missions. Self was thus entirely effaced in her interpretation of the act. She made it appear to be the recognition of the government of the work of the mission, and suggested that it might have been awarded to any member of the staff. Having recovered her courage, she spoke in English, saying that she did not understand why she had been chosen for the distinction, when others deserved it more. In a closing passage of simple beauty, she gave God the honor and praise for all that she had been able to accomplish. What had impressed her at the sham fight was that the officer was always in front leading and guiding his men. If I have done anything in my life, it has been easy, because the master has gone before. Forty Europeans came to tea at the McGregor's, and Ma was brilliant and entertaining. On Thursday, her host conveyed her back to use. Mrs. Bedwell had presented her with a bouquet of flowers, and she had taken out the roses, of which she was passionately fond, and placed them in water. On her arrival, she carefully planted one of the stems, and to her great joy grew and flourished in front of her hut. Don't think, she wrote home, that there is any difference in my designation. I am Mary Mitchell Slusser, nothing more and none other than the unworthy, unprofitable, but most willing servant of the King of Kings. May this be an incentive to work, and to be better than I have been in the past. At home the honor was made known chiefly through the record of the church, in which Mr. McGregor gave some account of her romantic career. He stipulated that this should be anonymous, for Ma, he feared, would never forgive him if she knew that he had been connected with it. She gained a repute that was akin to fame. 
Congratulations from all part of the world were showered upon her. Sir Frederick Lugard sent her hearty and sincere congratulations, and his appreciation of this well-earned receipt for her life of heroic self-service. In confusion of heart, she escaped Ikepe. I shall never look the world in the face again until all this blarney and publicity is over, she said. I feel so glad that I can hide here quietly, when no one knows about newspapers and records, and do my small portion of work out of sight. For a time she was kept busy replying to correspondence that the event evoked, and to all she made the same modest reply, that she saw in the honor God's goodness to the mission and her fellow laborers, who were leveling and building and consolidating the work on every side. It is a token that he means to encourage them in the midst of their discouraging circumstances. Chapter 13. Battle for a Life Each new kindness shown her was an incentive to harder service. She threw herself again into work with an extraordinary keenness. Dissatisfied with what she was doing at Ikepe, she moved in all directions, in her box on wheels, prospecting for new spheres of usefulness, fording rivers, crossing swamps, climbing hills, pushing through bush, traversing roads that were unsafe and where by law the people had to go in couples, and often putting up at villages six or ten miles distance. She saw crowds of people and hundreds of women and children in every street, but no light, not even a desire for it, though here and there she found a disciple or two. She met with more opposition from the chiefs than she had done in all her experience. They would not hear of God fashions, and would not permit teachers to enter their districts or churches to be built. They forbade all meetings for worship. She braced herself, body and mind, for the fight. She spent days in Palavar, but they would not give in. She insisted that at least the rights of the disciples to meet and worship in their own homes must be recognized. When the chief saw her face set with iron resolution, they were afraid, wavered, and agreed. They then became quite friendly. We don't object to schools, they admitted. We want our children to learn to read and write, but we want no interference with our fashions. If houses of God are built, we shall all die, and we are dying fast enough. I shall never give you teachers without the gospel, she declared. If you don't take the one, you won't have the other. But I'm going to bring both. I shall put up a shed on the roadside and hold services there whenever I get a chance. All right, Ma, they said with something like admiration. Come yourself, but don't send boys. And then she remembered. How can this poor tabernacle do it, even with six lads to push and pull and carry the cart through the streams? But I have opened the way, and that is something. In IP itself, the currents of heathenism ran deep and strong, and she found progress as difficult as in Okiyang, but she solved all these problems in the same fearless way as she had done there. Unlike those in other centers, the women and girls of the town took no interest in the work, and would not come forward, and she knew there was no hope for the community unless she secured their sympathy and attachment to the cause. At first, a few girls had ventured to sit by themselves in church. Then some village accident made the chiefs believe that their juju was angry because their girls had forsaken their sacrifices and deserted the heathen plays, and they placed pressure upon them to return. Some were flogged and made to pray before a clay pot with an egg in it, and all were forced out on moonlit lights to take part in the plays. If they don't do that, demanded the chiefs, how can they have children for us? The girls lost courage and forsook the church, but she did not blame them. Poor things, they are as timid as hares and have never had a choice of what to do until I came. But the chiefs, I will be hard on them. One day she gathered all those who were faithful to the church laws, and interviewed the chiefs. The spokesman for her party urged that the antagonism that had been showed should cease. He agreed that any one who broke the ordinary law should be punished, but no girl or young man should be compelled to sacrifice or pray to idols, or to be ostracized or fined for fearing God. 
The words were received with scornful looks and laughs, the chiefs being hardly able to restrain themselves, but they had a wholesome fear of Ma, and were never outwardly disrespectful in her presence. They looked at her. She kept a severe and solemn face, and they were a little nonplussed. Ma, have you heard, they asked. Am I not here, she replied. Taking the gifts of rods that had been offered, the chiefs retired. When they returned, they said, Ma, we hear. Let the present of rods lie. We accept of it, and we promise that we will respect God's laws in regard to the joining in our sacrifices, and in regard to the Sabbath. We shall respect it and leave our work, but we will not join in the confusion to the church. That we cannot do. God will doubtless be immensely pleased and benefited by your wondrous condescension, she said, with good human sarcasm. And they laughed heartily, and tried to be friendly. But Ma airily told her people to rise and go. Fearing she was not pleased, the chief's maid to accompany her. I am going round to see a woman in the next street, said Mary pointedly. They stopped dead at once. Here was the confusion they referred to, for the woman was a twin mother. It was the old weary battle over again. Her patience and persistence eventually won a victory for the girls. They were allowed to return to church, but the line was drawn at the day school. The chief said girls were meant to work and mother the babies, and not to learn book. Even the boys were tended. Each burdened with an infant to justify the waste of time was not allowed to bring a baby girl. If the baby of the home was a girl, he looked after her there, and his place was vacant. Mary began to think of teaching the girls apart from the boys, when one day several girls marched in. She courted them with all the skill she possessed, and gradually one or two chiefs brought their daughters, who returned with dresses from the mission box, and that ended the opposition. But there was no end to the struggle over twins. Time and again she had to send the girls to bring babies to the mission house, and many a stirring night she had, she sleeping with them in her bed, whilst outside stealthy forms watched for a chance to free the town from the defilement of the presence. The first that survived was a boy. The husband, angry and sullen, was for murdering it, and putting the mother into a hole in the swamp. She faced him with the old flash in her eyes, and made him take oath not to hurt or kill the child. He even promised to permit it to live, for which magnanimity she bowed ironically to the ground, an act that put his courage at once to flight. She had come to realize that it was not good to take twins from their mother, and she insisted on the child being kept in the home. Mary was sent to stay and sleep with the woman, and as she had, on occasion, as caustic a tongue as Ma, the man had not a very agreeable time. It was decided later to bring the woman and child to the hut, and there, beneath her veranda, they rigged up a little lean-to where they were housed, Jean sleeping with them at night and keeping a watchful eye on the mother. It is really, said Ma, far braver and kinder of her to live with that heathen woman with her fretting habits than it is for her to go out in the dark and fight with snakes. Jean has as many faults as myself, but she is a darling, nonetheless, and a treasure. All going well, they went on Sunday to church and left the mother. When they returned, they found she had broken the baby's thigh and given him some poisonous stuff. With care, the boy recovered, but they redoubled their precautions, hoping that when the parents saw how handsome and healthy and normal the little fellow was, they would consent to keep him. Ma was due at use, but she would not leave Ikepe until she had conquered. Another month passed. She was running out of provisions, including tea. To be without tea was a tremendous deprivation. She thought of the big, fragrant package that had been sent out as a gift, and was lying fifty miles away, but ungettable, and felt far from saintly as she resorted to the infusion of old leaves. One Sunday evening there was a shout. A canoe had arrived, and in it was a box. With haste, Jean flew for a hammer and chisel and broke it open, and sure enough, inside was the tea from Hughes. Mary marveled, with all the young folk round her, stood and thanked God, the Lord of the Sabbath, for his goodness. The beverage had never tasted so sweet and invigorating. 
though her thrifty scottish manner rejoiced that she had been able to save a little she confessed that she would never be a miser when tea was concerned whenever she received a package she invariably sent a share to old mammy fuller at duketown mammy she told a home friend has lived a holy and consecrated life there for fifty years and is perhaps the best-loved woman in duketown uncle tom in the old cabin is a child in the knowledge of god to mammy so we all love to share anything with her and she especially loves a cup of tea the parents of the twin were at last persuaded to take the big happy child home and provide for it four days later they sent for jean who returned carrying a weak pinched form that had death written on his face it succumbed shortly thereafter and that was the end of Ma's strenuous fight and jean's ten weeks toil by night and day chapter fourteen a vision of the night she was down at use for christmas tide with all her children about her and was very happy to see the consummation of her efforts to build a new church the opening took place on christmas day a bunny kirk it is she wrote mr crookshank officiated and was at his very best miss peacock my dear comrade and her young helper miss cooper a fine lassie came and spent the whole day so we had a grand time the biggest christmas i've ever had in calabar three tall flagpoles with trade cloth flags in the most flaming colors hung over the village from point to point embracing the old and the new churches the people provided a plain breakfast in their several homes for over eighty of our visitors who therefore stayed over the forenoon it made our christian population look fairly formidable and certainly very reputable as a force for uplifting and regenerating society it looks but yesterday that they were a horde of the most unlikely and unresponsive people one could approach and yet the gospel has made them already something to prove that is the power of god to salvation to a people and to an individual ever and anywhere it was to her one of the reddest of the red-letter days such a day as only comes at rare intervals she fell into the snare as she said of being carried away with it with the result that at night she was down with fever this kept recurring every alternate night it was the harmattan season in which she always wilted like some delicate flower in the sun and she grew so limp and fragile that she could not sit up she felt that she would be compelled to go home in the summer with the mcgregors but the idea frightened her chiefly because of the stir that had been caused by the honor she had received i dare not appear at home after all this publicity she said i simply could not face the music as she recovered a little she superintended the work of the girls outside and was amused at the way her advice was now received jean and annie do not hesitate to set it aside quietly in their superior way it often works out better than mine truth to tell though i say it does so by accident this was a different house-mother from the one who had ruled years before in one of her fever nights tossing in semi-delirium she had a vision she had been following the chapman alexander mission in glasgow with keen interest and in the long watches her excited brain continued to dwell on the meetings she dreamt or imagined that out of gratitude for what had been accomplished two young glasgow engineers had taken a six months holiday and come out with their motor-car to calabar they spent their days running up and down the government road through Ibibo, singing and giving evangelistic addresses. She interpreting, the girls who were packed into the cars doing the catering and cooking, and the government rest houses providing the lodgings. What a night it was, she wrote. The barons were afraid, for I was babbling more than usual, but to me it was as real as if it had all happened. We ran backwards and forwards between Aitu and Ikepi, spending alternating Sundays with the churches, and taking Miss Peacock to her outstations and visiting Miss Welsh. It was magnificent. The vision did not pass away. She took it as a sign from God, and out of it, in the morning, she formulated a scheme which one day she hoped would be realized. It is strange, she said, it has never dawned on us before. Here is the government taking use of the motor-car to do its work. Why should not the church do the same when the roads are here? It would permit one man to do the work of three. 
It would save strength and make for efficiency. The reason why I have been able to go further than my colleagues is that I have had the privilege of using government conveyances by land and water. To have a car and a mechanic missionary would be supplying us with a grand opportunity for multiplied service. She expounded on the matter in letters to her friends at home, and the longer she thought out the idea, the more it fired her imagination. Within a few days, she was flying over the ground in the government car on her way to Ikepi, with Minnie Akakani to the driver, and her experiences brought the conviction that the proposal was a good one. It might be too novel a plan for the church to take off officially, but she thought wealthy men in Scotland might materialize her vision as a thank-offering.